You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hey everyone, I just want to mention before playing the audio for today's podcast that I've also edited the video version of it. It's identical audio, but you actually get to see me and my guest, Kathy Joseph, speaking. So if you prefer to watch the podcast instead of listening to it, just head on over to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and click on the story for the Lightning Tamers. The link to the video is on that page. Again, the website is uselessinformation.org, and click on the story, The Lightning Tamers. Anyway, let's roll the tape. Can you imagine a world without electricity? I mean, no cell phones, TV, radios, computers, you know, coffee makers, lights. I can just go on and on. All I can tell you is that I don't want to live in that world. But did you ever wonder how the amazing world of electricity came to be? I mean, it all had to start somewhere, right? Well, my guest today, Kathy Joseph, has recently written a book titled The Lightning Tamers, and it tells the true stories of the dreamers and schemers who harnessed electricity and transformed our world. Now, if you're thinking this could be a boring read with, you know, complex science and lots of math, I assure you that it's not. This is a book that has been written with the non-scientist in mind. In fact, The Lightning Tamers is a fascinating read, and it's filled with quirky and unusual stories, you know, just like the ones you find on this podcast, and I assure you there's no math. I do think you're going to enjoy what you're about to hear, so please welcome Kathy Joseph to today's podcast. I am Steve Soldman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information So, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Steve. This is so much fun. Yeah, you know, when I was first contacted, um, oddly, I had seen your videos and I enjoyed them. So I had a little bit of an insight. I, but I asked for a copy of your book to be sent to me simply because I was afraid, you know, it's physics and it may blow some people away. And that's not really what my audience is about. But I was really surprised how easy it was to read. Uh, just that it, it wasn't complicated at all. You know, it's it's not that it's it's you know super simplified. You know, written for dummies, but there's not. It's a book that anyone can read. And when you did get into some of the um, you know technical points, I thought you did an excellent job of explaining it. You could tell you were a teacher at one point. You know, thanks so much. I I wrote it for adults who under think they don't under can't understand the word world sorry i wrote it for adults who think they can't understand the world mm -hmm. who think that the word physics means that they can't understand it and i wrote it sort of as a beach read because when you tell the stories of the people instead of of the science you tell the stories of the science through the people it becomes an interesting story automatically these people yeah. all had quirky lives and all were strange and funny and interesting. And we can always connect to some part of them. 
Yeah, uh, I have to say uh, quirky is a good way to put it. I was really surprised. Um, well, I wouldn't say surprised, but it's interesting how so many of these people had no scientific background. A lot of them who made really big advances in science, they were not accepted by the scientific community. They, they, you know, people just refused because they weren't part of the establishment to accept uh, what, uh, you know, what they had, to, you know, what they had discovered. And the other thing is, as I'm reading this book, all I could think is, you know, today we go to the store and we buy our batteries and we buy our wire, whatever. We need lumber, whatever. They didn't have any of this. These people had to create their own source of electricity. They they needed to, I don't know where they got wires from. Uh, all I could think is like barbed wire fencing or something. And, uh, and, and, this, and the other thing that really stood out to me is this is before there was any kind of communication. How did this knowledge move all across Europe and then Ben Franklin, you know, learns about it in the U.S. It's just crazy how all this knowledge got around. So maybe you want to comment a little bit on that. Where they found the material always struck me. There was a, an engine, a physicist in the United States named Joseph Henry, and he got his wire from his wife's haberdashery, like a wife's, no, they made the petticoats. He went to the place where she sure. got her petticoats and got the wires for the petticoats and the wrapping up. They had the, it was in silk for the thing and used that for his wire. He was actually a, a high school teacher. Well, you just said high school teacher. I have to tell you, my wife, she just resigned from her job uh, at the end of the mm -hmm. summer. Uh, the workload just got too much. She worked for 22 years at the Albany, Ac Albany Academy where he got his education. And they have a Joseph Henry Science Fair every year. Uh, there's a uh, The Albany Academy actually moved its location uh, many years ago. But the original building is still there. And there's a large statue of Joseph Henry right outside. So uh, I was actually thinking... Uh, many years ago, doing a podcast on him. Uh, and I did go, my wife arranged for me to meet with a historian for the school. And they have all, they have like a, you know, a whole library uh, of his instruments and, you know, documents and everything else. Uh, but I never got to it. it. Somehow I just pushed it off and the podcast just went off in a different direction. So, but anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. It was just, uh, you mentioned Joseph Henry. Oh, no, he, uh, speaking of someone not in science, he was going to be an actor. And then he got a cold and he was recovering at his mom's house and they had a, they were renting out rooms and someone left a, a children's textbook there and he reads it and he's like, nope, I'm going to do science. Okay. I didn't graduate from high school. <laughs> Mind you, he's in his early twenties by this point. So he goes back to the high school and manages to, to become a tutor while he's a student learning how to do this stuff and then becomes a high school teacher at the same high school, the same place you were mentioning where your wife worked. And then um, he was doing all these great experiments. Basically what his experiments were, they had figured out that if you wrapped a coil around an iron bar, and put electricity in the iron bar. It could pick up things. And then if you drop the electricity, it would drop. And he just tried to figure out the biggest thing he could pick up and drop. And he was mentioning how like everyone was really shocked when these really heavy weights would crash the ground. 
And um, and he also figured out, in the meanwhile, he also figured out not only the heaviest things he could pick up, but the furthest things he could pick up. He realized that if you connected the batteries different ways, you could get signals to go a lot longer. And that is why he is partially the father of the telegraph. He sure. actually set up the first telegraph in this yeah. high school. I think they actually have a model of it there. Uh, mm. It's not on display. It's in their library with the historian, you know. Um, yeah, uh, he he he's kind of forgotten today, unfortunately. Even here up in Albany, uh, I don't. I think if you mentioned to any, even at the Albany Academy, I bet most kids don't know who uh, who who Joseph Henry is. But he did go on, of course, to because uh, uh, my understanding is, and uh, this is just kind of based on what I've read, so I can't say it's factually correct, that he was considered the most uh, preeminent scientist of his day in the United States, not worldwide, but in the United States. Uh, and therefore, when uh, the U.S. government got their money, when Smithson died and left his money to the United States for the establishment of a uh, scientific institute, you know, that's the Smithsonian today, he was called upon to, you know, come down to Washington. And, uh, and uh, of course, I, I believe they actually... If you walk in the old building, I think they do have like maybe, you know, like uh, his tomb or something there. I'm not sure. It, you know, or maybe it's just a plaque, but it seems to me in my vague memory that there's a tomb or they maybe they've brought the tombstone there or something. But anyway, um, we're going off on a tangent. Nodding, but... Except for the tomb part, which I'm not sure about. Yeah. yeah. No, he was at the high school. Then they hired him at Princeton when it was called mm -hmm. something else, even though, as he said, He's not a graduate of any college. He actually complained bitterly about Princeton because he said that the labs at the high school were far better than the labs at Princeton. But when he published about different ways to pick up all those weights and to get that big distance, that was the first important scientific discovery from America since Benjamin Franklin. And so, yes, he was very, very popular. And he did become the first director of the Smithsonian. And they kept every single letter he wrote. And the Smithsonian did, like, to an obsessive degree. It's a little bit difficult to sure. parse through what's important and what isn't, because there's what's there, um, unless you're writing a book only on him, I'm sure, then. And, and I'm sure there's there must be many volumes written on him at this point, you know. Yes, there are. But like you said, he became less famous. But in the 1800s, he was incredibly famous. And I have a, a little story about Alexander Graham Bell. And him. so Alexander Graham Bell had this crazy idea for a telephone, which he called a telephone. And he went to see Joseph Henry and tell him about it. And Joseph, he told Joseph Henry about it. And he said, the problem is, uh, Bell said, the problem is, I don't know very much science. I don't know any science. <laughs> and then Henry said, turned to him and said, well, get it. <laughs> and Bell said that that was the most important two words he ever heard. And inspired him to continue on his way so i like that part <laughs> yeah and of course he did very well for himself <laughs> with those two words of advice yes he did 
So uh, before we go further, I thought maybe you uh, give a little background about yourself, how uh, you, uh, you know, how you, you know, what you studied in college, uh, you know, what your career was, how you started doing videos on YouTube and what led you to the book. So when, once you give a little overview, overview of that. Overview of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I studied physics in college uh, at the University of Chicago. I just, I, I've always felt like science was sort of like a, like someone doing a, a, a mystery, not a mystery, someone doing a magic show. And then they tell you how the magic works. And that was always what I enjoyed. And I always enjoyed the teaching aspect of it because I always enjoyed other people going, oh, wow, I, <laughs> I couldn't do the magic of the magic trick with the cards. I, I don't have the manual dexterity for them to be a magician, but I do have the mental dexterity to be a physicist magician. And that's what I wanted to do. So I studied physics and then I went into uh, graduate school because I thought I wanted to be a professor. But um, turns out I love learning, but I did not love the research the way they have it set up in university. So I, am, uh, I got a master's in physics and then I got a master's in something called engineering science, uh, which was fun. And then I went to grad school again. And then I decided that all I want to be is a high school teacher. So I did that for many, many years and I enjoyed it tremendously. And I feel like I got a good part of my education from teaching high school students. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned before, we, uh, you know, we, we, we set the mic, you know, we turned on the uh, recording. Uh, I was a high school physics teacher for 27 years. And I knew nothing when I first started. I mean, I, I have a degree in geology. Uh, you know, I, I took basic physics one and two in college, and that was it. Um, so uh, when I started teaching, I was one day ahead of the kids. But just like you said, I mean, I learned. I, I never learned as I never understood anything I learned in college till I had to teach it to others. That's when that's where the learning really takes place. When you have to explain it to somebody else. Uh, you really better know your stuff, you know? We were talking earlier about uh, my favorite scientist, a guy named Michael Faraday. Mm -hmm. And Michael Faraday started this thing where he taught kids, uh, but he meant like high school kids. He gave a special lecture on Christmas a day about science. This is related, I promise. Oh, and it started this connection where he would do this thing every year and he would teach about science and they were so inspirational that Charles Dickens wrote him once and asked him for his notes so he could put it in his magazine so wow. he could inspire people with how to learn science and it was inspirational to encouraging people to learn science through inquiry and not just through through not just science, but everything through inquiry and not just through rote memorization and this idea you can just open up the brain and pour the ideas in. Sure. And they still do these Christmas lectures. And if you look at the list of people who've done the Christmas lecture, it's people like Carl Sagan and David Attenborough 
Did I say their name right? And, yes, you did. Um, and all these amazing people who learned that if it if there's one thing to have this great knowledge and to have it to be able to teach it to people who already understand all the basics. But to understand it really, you have to teach it to people who don't understand the basics. Because that's when you get that's when you get the great questions you just didn't think of before. And I like I said, I went to graduate school for many, many times. So I I have more education than most PhDs in mm-hmm. <laughs> But I really learned it when I taught it in high school, because that's when I learned what things other people got confused by. Oh, radio waves are not sound waves. They're invisible light waves. And I can just say that. And then people get it wrong on the test over and over again. Oh, I, I, I I had that every year. They, I I would say every year, but let's say every second or third Regents exam here in New York state on the physics exam, they'd ask that. And I knew they're going to get that wrong because no matter how many times you, and they'll play around with it, you know, but it just never quite sinks in. They think radio waves have to be sound. They don't realize it, you know, that it's light, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that in order for that to, I didn't do this as much when I was a teacher. So I was a teacher for many, many years and I loved it. And I had a um, a video I showed about a, which was called Einstein's Big Idea. But the part about it that I showed was one where a young Michael Faraday um, was living a life of, he had no education and he was working, binding books. And his boss let him read the books and do sometimes the experiments in them when there was books with experiments in them. And he ended up getting a job with this chemistry professor. And the video was about that sort of process. And it it was so inspiring to me because the experiment that he did in the video that was a recreation of the original one was similar to the experiment that I had been doing for my students to show them how electricity is in the wire and the magnetic field is around the wire. And I had no idea that when that was first discovered, they didn't realize that the magnetic field went in a circle around the wire. Um, Because I was always told, Orsted discovered circular magnetic field, and it was never displayed as a, like, why this was unusual, why this was different, what Orsted thought was going on. And once I realized that I could study the the people were so fascinating to me and how they got it. And like you were saying, how they did these experiments. Faraday writes a friend. He's like, so dear A, the guy's name was Alexander. Dear A, I went and I got pennies and I got this and you will be amazed, A. It bubbled because he made a battery and he made it have a chemical reaction. And he was so excited. And I'm so excited by physics and it's uh, such a connection to realize these people aren't otherworldly. They're just 
dorks like me who like <laughs> understanding the world. And it made me have feel like such a connection to them. But it also made me feel like I that was the teaching two things really changed my understanding of reality. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the first you know... one was high school. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And the second one was the history. Mm hmm. I don't I wouldn't say I have quite the depth and knowledge of, you know, the history behind physics itself like you do. But uh, I always tried whatever I was teaching, I always try to give a little bit of, you know, the background story on it. And I think that made things more interesting, more real for the kids, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, there's only so much time in the day you can't spend, you know, you, you could throw in a story at the beginning of this or wherever and where they came up. But, you know, it'd be great if you could just sit there and, you know, stand there and just tell stories every day and not teach anything. But at the end, I had to teach the entire curriculum, you know. I honestly, I think the more I, I think that teaching it through the history, actually, it, it makes the science difficulty um increase in difficulty from simpler to more complicated because you start with the easy the first people who didn't know anything so they didn't know anything so your audience doesn't know anything so you don't have to say okay magnets are different from static electricity you can just say this person figured out magnets are different from static electricity this is what he, you know, instead of, why don't you guys do a little experiment to see what you think the rules of magnets are and the rules of static electricity are, and then compare and contrast with the actual person. I think there is a way to teach this through the history. And I think it is a profound way. The problem is teachers are so overwhelmed with how much to do and how much, and there's no books like this even my book is not is i think could be helpful but it is not a it's not a lesson plan <laughs> yeah what i was going to add is that you know being a teacher in new york state all they cared about is how my kids did on this regents exam at the end of the year i could be the greatest teacher or the worst teacher as long as my scores were good at the end uh that's all they cared about and uh you know you have no choice but to Basically, I, I used to joke that the day you started teaching, the first day of school, you're already behind. You're on this kind of, you know, treadmill where you're like racing to keep up, you know, and you've got, you know, if you're not onto the next topic of the following week, you know, you're you're behind, you know. Uh, so uh, as much as I tried to incorporate that kind of stuff, the curriculum itself didn't allow that. Of course, if I was teaching uh, a course that wasn't part of the state curriculum, you know, that wasn't. Uh, assessed by the state, then you have a lot more flexibility. So if I, if I had been able to teach an elective, say in physics, uh, maybe that could have happened. But but it's such a small school, there was just no no possibility of doing that. You know, there wouldn't be enough students to take it. You know, right? I, honestly, I, I think that I found that I, I mean I've I've definitely had that same thing and the same rules. I found that when I tried to fit everything in that they asked me to, the the students didn't necessarily, you know, you can teach it, but sure. they don't necessarily get it. Um, but I, I found that it's surprising how much you can do through the history. 
um, there's these very complicated equations called Maxwell's equations. And um, Richard Feynman took about four weeks to cover them, I think. And they're, they're, they're complicated. Oh, sure. The math is complicated. Everything's complicated. And I made a video driving them, getting them from the original concepts. And that's one of my videos that's a little bit advanced for most people sure. who are not in physics. But I did it through the history. Now, not through the detailed history. It was a much more superficial history. But it was amazing how quickly it, it makes, I think, including the history, it, it, it makes, in general, in physics, we've been propping everything up with the math. And I feel like the math should be the tool, not the, not mm -hmm, the structure. I agree. And the, if you prop it up with these people, it's amazing how much the, the material sticks with people and is easier to teach and get through the ridiculous amount of material that they require a physics teacher. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the two things that uh, I really liked about physics is uh, you could, it was good at predicting things. You could say, you know, if I launch this here at a certain angle at a certain speed, where's it going to land? And it would always land right there, you know. Um, but the other thing is the demos. I mean, the, you, kids used to joke I always was blowing things up in the classroom. I never did blow anything up. But some of the demos, you know, are pretty crazy. And though, you know, in addition to the stories, being able to do these demonstrations uh, uh, that, you know, you, you talk in the book about the Van de Graaff generator. I mean, it, uh, I, I had no problem wasting a, a, a lab period, you know, 80 minutes you know, showing everything you could do with that. It's just a fun thing and it gets them really interested in science. And I'd actually show it to my earth science students simply because I figured if they really like this, maybe in three years, they'll take physics also, you know, it, it's kind of like a little teaser. Hey, you know, look, look at these fun things you can do in this class, you know? The, um, the Van de Graaff is an endless delight, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But, uh, I, I don't know if you noticed this. So I don't know if your audience knows this. Van de Graaff is this, it's um, it looks like a metal mushroom, mm -hmm. and it, inside it has a belt. And when you spin the belt, it collects extra charges. So if you put your hands on it and you're standing on the insulating stand, your hand will hair will stand up, and you can get sparks and you can get things to light up, and it's it's fun. Um, and it turned out um, I don't know if you well you read my book that it mm -hmm. has a precursor in this they used to do this to entertain people not just entertain school children but entertain nobility entertain the height of the height especially in france um they would have these glass they did, didn't have a metal they had a glass thing that they spun by hand and then they would have hair stick up and they would give my favorite electric kisses they would give yeah. shocking kisses and then write bad poetry about it. Or they'd have this jar that would collect the charges and then give out shocks. Um, and I was, it was fun for me to think that all of our experiments in the modern classroom were sort of this pale imitation of royalty demonstrations in the 1700s. And that, um, you know, because 
there is a limit to how much we were to do our students. Uh, I was going to add, uh, and I don't know if this story is true, but uh, maybe about three hours from me is the in Boston is the uh, science center that they have one of those you know hands on type science centers, and they have a room the giant. Uh, theater you go into, you know, and it has a giant band of graph generators, two tall towers with the balls. And of course, the operator stands in a cage, you know, Faraday's cage at the bottom. What I've heard, and again, I'm not sure if this is true, that those are the original van de Graaff generators that van de Graaff used in his experiments because he was trying to smash atoms, is my understanding, and they weren't powerful enough. And he donated them to the museum. But since they couldn't get them into the museum, they put them in the parking lot, they set them up, and they built the building around them. So I don't know if that story is true. That's just what I've heard. Um, there's some, something for you to look into there. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I've heard of any of that part. So. Yeah. So, but yeah, but it's an incredible show. I mean, I, I'm sure other science museums have similar uh, setups today. But I'm told those are the original ones that uh, you know Van de Graaff used. So, uh, so you got to you got to take a trip to Boston someday. There you go. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you: uh, How did you go from being a physics teacher yeah. to now doing YouTube videos? I mean, how did you end up there? So, what happened was I was teaching part time. And I had my second child and ended up staying at home. And I thought, well, I, I had trouble getting another part-time job after having two children. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to have a full-time job because, as you know, full-time physics is a lot of work. And uh, so I thought maybe, and at the same time, I had had, a lunch with this lady and I told her about teaching high school and she said she was too stupid to understand how electricity works. <laughs> uh, and it broke my heart. It breaks my heart when people, when their education left them feeling stupid. It breaks my heart. Uh, and I feel like that's the opposite of physics. Physics is all about why is this happening? What's going on here? Where is this going on? You know, and it, it felt like the opposite of that. And I felt that there was, uh, I felt really good about teaching high school students, but I felt like there was a group of people who I was missing, which is all the adults, all the adults who had gone through high school and gone through college maybe, or even, you know, this woman was a lawyer, so gone through law school, <laughs> but had felt like the scientific world was beyond her. And I thought, well, maybe, and I really wanted to learn more about the history of science because when I was teaching physics, I would put little bits in there, but I just didn't have enough time to really study the history. And so I thought, well, I'll study the history and then I'll write a book. So they'll learn the physics through the history I'll learn the history through the physics and we'll have a good time. So I started writing that and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the process. I fell in love with meeting all these people through the history. I felt like I never really understood what they did until I learned who they were as people. 
and why they did what they did. Um, and after about a year of that, I thought I was almost done with my book, which <laughs> I was not. <laughs> and I was uh, having lunch with a friend and I said, what should I do with this? Should I write a blog? How do I get people who don't know me personally to read the book? And she said, Kathy, you like to talk, start a vlog. And I <laughs> said, well, what's a vlog? And she said, YouTube. And I said, oh, YouTube, I know what YouTube is. So I started this channel and I also fell in love with the channel. I mean, I legit just started it so I could get people to read my book whenever <laughs> it was out. And then I fell in love with the process. I felt it's, it's a different each, my book is very episodic. It's linked, but it's little stories that are linked to each other. And my videos are little stories that are linked to each other. Although every once in a while, I'm like, next time. And then next time hasn't come yet. <laughs> I, get, I get diverted. Squirrel. And then suddenly I'm talking about something else. But it the YouTube channel gives me freedom to study things that I just think are cool that don't necessarily fit into a book. You know, like uh, I did one on the history of the um, Nobel Prizes, Alfred Nobel, and why they made the Nobel Prizes, and that there is a story about it, and the story is not true. The story did it to re revive his reputation, but that was just made up by a biographer. Yeah. A very, and then everyone copied that biographer and copied the biographer because they liked the story. But no, he didn't do it that way. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, 
the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Um, so, so how often do you put out videos? It is completely erratic. I've had periods where I had a video a week, and I've had periods where six months go by without a video. Um, it depends on what I'm working on and uh, also if I um, what else is going on in my life. I just moved. Uh, and the like. Well, that, that'll that'll be a nice little interruption, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, um, I, I, w- I was trying to be on a regular schedule for a hot second. And then I realized that, you know what? the only way that I can be keep the quality the way I want it to and tell the stories that I want to tell. And some of my stories take seven minutes and some take an hour. And so I wanted to, and everything is, is, is very, very, very well researched. Uh, Everything has original sources to it. So sometimes it takes me a long time to put it together. So I, I wish I could tell you a more, I, I publish every Thursday, every other yeah. Thursday. No, I, I really don't publish every other Thursday. <laughs> yeah. When I, when I first started my podcast, uh, I tried the first few months, months, um, I was trying for every week, but I realized there was no way, uh, I could keep that up. And then it went, it, it, it's, I noticed it went to about two weeks and it went to three weeks and, and then I kind of settled on every four or five weeks or so. And for the first 11 years, I was putting out 10 or 11 episodes per year. And then uh, probably like five, six, seven years ago, I can't even, it just becomes a blur after a while. Mm-hmm. I was approached by these two guys and they were starting a history podcast network and they wanted me to join. And I said, I'm not really interested. Uh, I wasn't making any money from the podcast. I was actually losing I figure it was cost me about a thousand dollars a year to keep the podcast going, but there were no ads. It was nothing I could. Uh, I think the law. I once went three months. I was working on my house. We just bought the house, and I was, you know, redoing our living room. I went three months without recording an episode. I liked not being obligated to, you know, yeah. to be on a schedule. And I said to them, "I don't really. I don't. I don't do it for the money. I did it because I, I said I'm doing it because it's a hobby, and I don't want to be." Uh, you know, where I have to have a you know, a new podcast every month, you know, that I have to, you know, but they convinced me to do it. And I've been on a net, I'm on my second network now, and I'm not really sure it's worth it. Um, uh, it brings in a little bit of money. Honestly, after I subtract all my expenses, I'm not really earning that much. They don't do a heck of a lot to promote my podcasts. I've seen, I switched, just switched to a new network uh, last January, not this January, last January, a year ago. I've seen no growth. It's it's just a money making thing for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, in some, I, I think eventually I'm going to move back to kind of what you're doing. You know, just as long as it takes to put a story together, that's what it takes. Um, right. And uh, I, I also wanted to add. Uh, I know I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but uh, you just reminded me of all these things, you know. Um, but you know, years ago uh, when I started researching, you had to go to a library. You know, there's right. no way to. I mean, now I rarely ever leave my seat. Uh, I, you know, um, uh, oddly, I just did a story recently about this guy, very, what I call a small story, 
about this man who uh, they wanted to build a mall, but he wouldn't sell his house. And they kept offering him more and more money. And he just refused. He's like, this is my house. And he, you know, he set his price and they wouldn't meet it. And he wasn't going anywhere. Um, and I started that story like 10 years ago, maybe more, a little bit more than that. But I, I had so many unanswered questions. So I just put it aside. Now I come back to it 10 years later. And because there's so much more information out there, you know, newspaper archives, you know, ancestry, you know, things that just, if they did exist years ago, they were very incomplete. And every day there's more and more and more stuff available. And it's just that much easier to do research. So that's all I, I, I just wanted to throw that in because you were commenting about how much time you spend researching, you know. Oh, but it's it's astonishing what you can do from your home and astonishing what I can I can read papers from the 1700s and I just type it in the thing and there it is. And then I find the original quote. It's amazing to me. Yeah. And I, I I'm I don't think I could have done anything that I did if I hadn't started when I started. If I hadn't started when the internet was robust enough, research was a robust enough. I couldn't sure. have done any of this research. Yeah, when I, when I wrote my first book, I remember uh, the nearest university. To, well, there's two major colleges by me. Uh, there's RPI, the Rensselaer Polytechnic Technic Institute, and then there's University of Albany, which is a public university. And I remember going to University of Albany going into the basement and using microfilm and, you know, loading up these reels and, you know, trying to, you know, using the reader's guide and all these other abstract, you know, there, there are other indexes that are a little bit more uh, in depth than the reader's guide, but having them locate the article and then paying 10 cents per copy to print everything out. And now I just don't even leave my desk, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's why I, I dedicated my book to the archivist. Wow. Uh, yeah both the the people who saved them and the people who put them online because now i can i mean someone or multiple multiple people collected all of the early um radio magazines and wireless magazines from the early 1900s and you can just read you know 1922 magazine and the only problem with that is that you are trying to read one article and then it's not easy to just read that one article. Yeah, it's it's a black hole, as they say. <laughs> well, it's such a window into the world. That was the thing about the history that I was not expecting. It's such a window into our past. I mean, I think of... You know, when I think of the early 1800s, I think of um, Jane Austen, because that's my window into the early mm -hmm. 1800s. But now I have other windows into that time period. I have uh, Irish mathematician and his his past and his love letters and his, you know, and I, you know, and that's a totally different view of a a similar time period just from a different window. And we're used to history either being um, vague or being specific about kings, queens, 
sure. you know, generals. And when you study scientists, you get to study specific about people from all, all walks of life. And you see what they write as love letters. And you see what they, what they're concerned about and how they argue with each other and what they're, even if they aren't from, you know, these aren't just the letters of kings and queens. These are the letters of ordinary people who sure. are also extraordinary people. Um, and because people tend to keep their letters, it's, it's such an, it's such a beautiful and unique window into the past. I've, and also, like the technology, understanding how the technology changed their world. I mean, we think of technology changing our world, but it certainly does. But how did how did the world work? How did things change when there was a telegraph? Um, there was this famous case where this man killed his girlfriend, and he was an uh, and he escaped. He left after killing his girlfriend and they saw him and he got on a train. And so they sent a signal on the telegraph. You like this story that he, that this person matching this description, he was a Quaker. And this was in England and they sent it on the telegram so that they captured him on the other end. Of I've heard this story. I, I can't pick out the names, but uh, it was on a podcast or something I was listening to. They told that story. Um, it, it may have been criminal. I have a feeling the podcast criminal, uh, um, which which I was I, I don't listen to any particular podcast regularly. What happens is like if like if we go away on vacation and we're driving many hours, I'll just I'll just listen to a whole batch at one time, you know, and I'm pretty sure that was one of the stories that they told. I, I would guess it was the podcast criminal, but I honestly don't remember the name. So that is a good story. So I didn't mean to cut you off, though. My, my favorite part about that is that the particular type of this was not the telegraph the way we think of it with the dots and the dashes. This was a different kind of telegraph where they had three arrows that went one way or the other. And in a pattern to memorize. And they didn't have all the letters because you didn't need to use all the letters. Sure. So they didn't have a cue for Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't remember. I think they spelled it K, uh, K-U. They spelled yeah. it with a K. And there was a lot of repeat of like, wait, what? But uh, they they managed to catch their person. They were very excited. This was the first person caught by telegraph, <laughs> and it made it very popular. Yeah. Um. One one thing uh, I as I'm reading the book is I, I just can't help but think how modern electricity is. I'm I'm not talking about you know what we have today, but 150 years ago, nobody had anything in their home. I mean. Right. You know, even even a hundred years ago, most people did not have electric lights in their house. Uh, you know, it, it just reminds me of uh, my grandfather. He passed on. I, oh gosh, maybe about ten years ago now, but he lived to well. His question: like, He either lived to one hundred and six or he lived to one hundred and eight. Uh, I think one hundred and six, but he used to say one hundred and eight. Uh, and you know, I, one day I'm just talking. He's probably about one hundred and three, one hundred and four. I called him just to you know say hello, and um. 
I, I just started asking him, like, when was the first time you saw a car? When was the first time, mm-hmm. you know, you, you saw electricity or because he grew up in a home, you know, when he was born, there was no electric, there was no plumbing in his house. Uh, he was brought to the U.S. maybe when he was three or four or five. You know, there's some question on that also. Um, but he told me, you know, like his the first time he ever saw a car was a doctor's car. First time he heard radio, the first time he saw television. I mean, we take these things for granted today. And yet here's a man who, you know, passed away, you know, probably a decade ago. And it's seen all these things. He went from nothing to, you know, man landing on the moon, you know. Right. It's just kind of crazy. Well, they described... Well, uh, a very disreadable, that's um, that's not how you say it, uh, a not very honorable um, U.S. congressman who had a secret deal to with uh, Samuel Morse to get the telegraph out. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yes. The, the telegraph would, uh, was uh, defying space and time, I think he put it at, which I thought was very... Very well said. It was like yes, and it did, and it did. It changed. I mean, just to think, like, how did you deal with a medical emergency before phones? Before uh, how did that work? How did you deal with fires before cars and and telephones and te- I mean all these things? It it is striking how modern even the most basic things of elect- our world is. It's, it's pretty incredible if you sit back, you know, especially after reading your book and you realize most of what you're talking about. I mean, you do start at the very beginning, you know, with, uh, mm. uh, I, I'm trying to remember, but basically you started with this, uh, I can't remember the name, but this guy, William Gilbert, a doctor, right? He was yeah. a doctor uh, and uh, he, he figured out magnetism and electricity weren't the same thing. Am I correct? That is correct. He was Queen Elizabeth's doctor. So yeah. 1580 to 1600, really long time ago. But yeah, but but really most, I'd say, well, you know, there's lots of developments. But until you get to the days of, you know, Joseph Henry and like that, that to me, that's when electricity really just took off. You know, when they realize they can make motors out of it and do, you know, actually make money off of electricity, I think that's when it really right. took off, you know? And that, honestly, the, I mean, the motors was like the early 1800s, but the make money off of it was the late 1800s. It was like 1876, I think, there was this um, Russian man named Yabaklov, and he went to Paris to escape his debts <laughs> and he invented this way, this kind of light, it's this bright arc lamp, it was called. It was kind of like a welder's arc. Mm-hmm. And what he invented was, the problem was, is if you used a battery and you had this welder's arc, one end would decay faster than the other and it would go out. So he found this way to make it sort of have two pieces and decay at the same time, but it only really worked with alternating current. Anyway, he he displayed this in France in seven, 1876, I'm going to say. I might be off by a couple years. And suddenly the world was like, oh my gosh, we can make money off this. <laughs> 
And it's amazing how quickly things change from that. That was the one where it's just like, oh my gosh, we can make money off of this, was the, the thing that sort of flipped the switch, so to speak, pardon the pun. So, um, uh, of course, we can't talk forever. I, I thought the one story I wanted you to tell was, uh, and you can just tell it briefly, is about Laura Bassey. Uh, that was one that really intrigued me in the book. So why don't you just give a quick uh, rundown on that? Oh, Laura Bassey. So what happened was I was looking into something about the history of radio. And I was reading about this other woman. And she uh, I was reading about this other woman named Pertha Ayrton. And it said, and she was a scientist in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it said, there was a newspaper article that said, she's the first woman who worked in electricity since Laura Bossy in the 1700s. And I'm like, Laura who? Laura, wh what? I had never heard of this woman. So I look into it and there was this woman and she was in Italy and she was in this town and they had, um, they were on hard times and she was known as a genius. Ever since she was a little girl, she could translate into multiple languages. She could do logic, she could do math, she could do science, she could do whatever. And her father and cousin would have her go out and do demonstrations of her brilliance. And they decided to allow her to earn her PhD in this town in order to get attention to the town is like a um a way of a tourism bait you know like come see the thinking woman so she does this thing because usually you would get your phd inside you know like but no this was an open air they had parades they made coins they had poetry it was they had big arguments about like what order the different people would be in the prison like it's the whole thing. So she does this whole thing. She gets her PhD. She's the second woman to get her PhD and in the modern world. And uh, then she writes, she's like, the honor has been given to me. It's been greater than I could ever imagine. And they're like, that's great. No teaching. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean no teaching? And they were like, you can give public demonstrations and you can write poetry, but no teaching because the, the, because of your gender. And she said, well, what if I teach at home? And they said to men, that's even worse. <laughs> so what she ended up doing is she got married and people, the people who had promoted her were extra offended that she got married. And she said, I am going, I'm getting married so that I can be a professor. And they were like, no, you're, you're, this is terrible. You're destroying your name. No, 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 no. But she did, she got married and she ended up being like, they, um, the church had limited, they had a whole bunch of books that only people with PhDs who are over 24 could read. And so she was the only woman who could legally read these books <laughs> in Italy. And she started this school and it became very, very popular. It became so popular because she loved experiments and she wasn't constrained by all the rules of the, 
that they put on the professors at the university that she ended up being the most famous scientist in uh, in her town in Bologna and like um, Volta wrote to her and dedicated things to her um, what was the gosh, Gal Galvani Galvani, Galvani right? was her student um, yeah so the, all these people would come and visit her it was she was very important and when the head of the science department died uh, actually, first the head of the science department died, which was, um, and her husband became the new head assistant. And then he died, I guess, with a very unsafe position. And then when that happened, her husband wasn't famous enough for him to be a professor. And so they finally, they just said, okay, forget it. You're not only allowed to teach in the university, you can become the head of the science department. <laughs> So she finally became the head of the science department. And then unfortunately she had a heart attack like three years later and she was the whole city mourned, and she was buried in this church in the town. And you can still see her grave there right next to her student Galvani, who was famous for discovering few years after her death, that um, two different metals could cause frogs to jump and animal electricity, which started the whole world of the battery. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really great little, and I think that kind of, that story kind of encapsulates your book. There's lots of small stories, things you probably didn't know, a little quirky, uh, interesting. And uh, it, it, you know, as you're telling it, it, people always ask me, where do you find these stories? I have very, very obscure things. And I just say, I read and I kind of do what you do. I'll see one sentence and that just sets me off on, on a tangent somewhere. Digging. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, there's a story here, you know, and that's, that's exactly what you did. So, so Kathy, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast. It's been great. Again, the book is the lightning tamers. And where can you find the book? Uh, if people want to read it. Amazon or bookstore or library. Sure. Uh, same thing with me. And uh, of course, your YouTube channel, which has uh, over 180,000 subscribers, that's incredible, is Kathy Loves Physics and History. And I did check this out. If you just type in Kathy Loves Physics, it will pop up. So uh, it's it's a really great channel. And on the web, it's kathylovesphysics.com. And uh, again, I just want to thank you for uh, being on uh, the podcast. Is there anything else you want to add? No, that's it. Thank you so much, Steve. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So why don't we just say goodbye to everyone? So bye. Bye.